even the best pro-choice arguments suck. <laughs> Why? Because as it turns out, defending the indefensible is actually quite difficult to do. <laughs> However, these pro-choice arguments are heralded as the magic bullet in destroying pro-lifers. We will lay waste to the best arguments the pro-choice movement can offer. Save this evergreen episode and re-listen to make your pro-life apologetic bulletproof. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in this week. We wanted to create this sort of evergreen episode as we've been doing a little bit more of here and there just to provide a replay episode for you to develop this pro-life ethic, right? I call it the pro-life scaffolding of the mind that we're building in your mind so that when you enter the battlefield of culture, or the debate over abortion, you can enter that battlefield confidently, knowing exactly how to engage and respond to the, the quote-unquote persuasive arguments for dismembering humans who happen to be in a womb that was created to hold them. So G.K. Chesterton once said that there is a thought that stops all thought, and that's the only thought that's worth stopping. And I think that these couple arguments that we're going to look at that are heralded as the pro-abortion magic bullet to lay waste to pro-lifers represent that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that doesn't deserve a place in, in any rational political discourse, in any, in any careful philosophical debate or thinking, because they assume ideas that are so morally bankrupt and ridiculous that they should be dismissed as uh, from the from the halls of reasonable discourse. But unfortunately, because of the moral decay as it pertains to the issue of abortion, many people, including pro-lifers, fail to see the bad type of thinking that is present in these arguments. Because if they were placed in any other moral framework besides abortion, these arguments would be laughed out of public discourse and rightly dismissed. But because people's moral compass has completely deteriorated on abortion, these two arguments we're going to look at are taken as the best the pro-choice movement has. And this episode is simply going to be my attempt to show you that these arguments suck. And if this is the best the pro-choice movement has to offer, you can rest assured that reality will indeed reassert itself in the end, that reality being the pro-life position of human equality that protects the right to life of all human beings and and makes their slaughter illegal. That is the goal of the pro-life movement, to make abortion illegal. So we're going to stop these arguments in their tracks and give you the tools to thoroughly dismiss them. But first, before we get to these big two arguments, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the pro-life movement, then consider becoming a patron of the show by going to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. As you know, pro-life individuals are largely underfunded and understaffed, but we're talking about some of the most important ideas ever, and we're contending for those ideas in the public square in a culture that is still not as friendly to the pro-life position as we would like, right? We're dealing with apathy. We're dealing with right outright hostility. But we want to put these ideas before the American public to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. And we want to force that conversation and dialogue on the American public. So we want to develop a team of patrons so we can afford to increase the production value of the show, the amount of episodes that we do, and actually begin recording debates and interactions and conversations in the public square with individuals as we present them with the type of ideas we talk about on the show. So if you want to help us do that, consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash unaborted. That means a lot to us. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more.
the famous violinist. That is the name of the first pro-abortion argument that is supposed to be, you know, the the magic bullet and just destroying you forever and turning you into, into a pro-choice advocate just like that. The famous violinist. Now, this comes from Judith Jarvis Thompson, who wrote a piece called A Defense of Abortion in 1971. So this was even prior to the legalization of abortion in 1973. And she wrote that in a journal called Philosophy and Public Affairs in Volume 1. The main point of her argument is to actually concede the pro-lifer's point that the unborn child is a distinct human being that ought to be granted the acknowledgement or rights of personhood. And that's what is seemingly makes this argument so persuasive, right? Because if you can bite the bullet and acknowledge your opponent's premises and then go on to show that despite those premises, the conclusion does not follow, then that is a more strategic philosophical approach into defeating your opponent's ideas and establishing your own. So that's what she attempts to do. But I think I'm going to show you that in biting the bullet and conceding the pro-lifer's point, her premises do not follow. Her conclusion does not follow from granting our premises. But her main point is to grant that the fetus is a person and has a right to life. She says, okay, okay, pro-lifer, let's go with that. But that the fetus does not have the right to use the mother's body for life support. And that the mother should not be forced to render her support to that child. So she argues that the mother's bodily autonomy trumps the child's, even if the child is a human being and a person with equal dignity and worth. It's just a situation in which the mother's rights trump the child's. Okay, so, that, so that's her main point that she's trying to convey. And I'm going to just go ahead and do her argument the best service that I can by actually just reading you. Her words when she articulated this argument in 1971, and then we're going to lay out the problems with it and thoroughly debunk it as an absolutely ridiculous argument. Um, and we're going to do that by showing you that the the analogy she seeks to draw is not an analogous relationship between the mother and the child. OK, but here's her argument. OK. Writing in 1971, Judith Jarvis Thompson says, you wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you, and last night the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. The director of the hospital now tells you, look, we're sorry the Society of Music Lovers did this to you. We would have never permitted it if we had known, but still they did it, and the violinist is now plugged into you. To unplug him... To, to unplug you would be to kill him. But never mind, it's only for nine months. By then, he will have recovered from his ailment and can safely be unplugged from you. She asks, is it morally incumbent on you to accede to this situation? That's what she says. No doubt it would be very nice of you if you did a great kindness. But do you have to accede to it? What if it were not nine months, but nine years or longer still? What if the director of the hospital says, tough luck? I agree, but now you've got to stay in bed with the violinist plugged into you for the rest of your life because remember this, all persons have a right to life and violinists are persons. <laughs> okay, so that's her argument. Her argument is to compare abortion as a moral equivalent with 
unconsciously against your will being plugged into a violinist and then being told that you have to remain plugged into him for nine months. So therefore, by making the moral equivalency, what Judas Jarvis Thompson is saying is that abortion is the same as unplugging yourself from a a famous violinist with an underlying pathology who would have died if not for your help. She's saying that those are morally equivalent. And she's assuming that the pro-lifer will say, no, you are not morally required to accede to the situation. She's assuming, and I think rightly so, that most pro-lifers would say, no, I would not be committing a moral wrong if I unplugged myself from the violinist. And so at that point, she'll say, ha, I got you. I got you. Because that's the same exact scenario that the child in the womb or the mother finds herself in when she unplugs from the unborn child. But for Thompson's argument to work, the relationship between the famous violinist and yourself in the thought experiment must parallel the mother's relationship to her own child, right? It has to be a parallel thought experiment, a parallel analogy for the moral argument she's making to work in the first place. And I believe that there's at least five problems with this argument, five ways in which the relationship between the famous violinist and yourself, who has been kidnapped by the Society of Music Lovers, does not correlate whatsoever in any meaningful way to the relationship between the mother and her unborn child. So let's go through all five of those and dismiss this utterly ridiculous argument that masquerades as a pro-abortion magic bullet. The first difference between these two cases— and the first problem with this argument is the idea of conscious consent versus unconscious dissent, meaning that you can't truly consent to something if you're unconscious, right? So it's assumed that you're unconsciously dissenting to whatever someone would want to do with you if you're not conscious versus conscious consent. Women don't wake up and find themselves pregnant, right? Other than in cases of rape, they willingly engage in an act ordered towards procreation. So even if Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument works, it would only work to justify abortion in the case of rape, right? Because you, who were kidnapped by the Society of Music Lovers, you unconsciously dissented. You just woke up and found yourself plugged into the violinist and you're saying, what the bleep? How did this happen? That, that would be the only scenario that could be rightly analogized to rape in which the mother is abused. Maybe she is actually unconscious. And unfortunately, there are horrific circumstances of that happening. Or she just doesn't consent, but she's raped. That would, those, that would be the only way that this argument would work. Granting all of her argument would be it would only justify abortion in the case of rape. A woman cannot reason, reasonably claim that she bears no responsibility for the pregnancy in the same way that she bears no responsibility for the violinist. Right. Consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. Sex is naturally biologically ordered towards procreation. Therefore, if you participate in that act, sex, you are consenting to the possibility of pregnancy, whether it happens or not. Now, someone might object to this and say, well, what if she used birth control? Right. She was actively working to avoid pregnancy and therefore didn't consent to it. And this is a popular objection from the pro-abortion left. When pro-lifers say consent to sex is consent to pregnancy, they respond to go, no, it isn't if she's using contraception because she was using something to actively prevent pregnancy. So she consented to sex. She consented to sex with, with contraception, but she didn't consent to pregnancy. 
<laughs> but one way that pro-lifers can respond to this is just by to extrapolate that into any other circumstance, particularly if it involves the father. <laughs> and let's see if they would still grant that objection. For example, can a man refuse to pay child support after impregnating a woman on a one night stand so long as he wore a condom? He didn't consent. to. He was using contraception. He was using a contraceptive method, a condom. He did not consent to to pregnancy, even though he consented to consensual sex. So therefore, he is not obligated to pay child support. Question, has that argument ever held up in a court of law? No, it hasn't, because we all recognize that consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. But even if this argument works, it would only work to justify abortion in the case of rape, because that is the because the relationship between the famous violinist and yourself sort of uh, is similar to the relationship between a woman who is raped, but not in any other consensual sexual relationship. So that's the first problem with this argument. The second problem is this idea of killing versus letting die. Killing versus letting die, right? So in this thought experiment, if I choose to unplug myself from the violinist, which I believe I would be morally allowed to do. I don't think I'd be committing a moral wrong if I did that. If I unplug myself from the violinist, does he die because I killed him? No, he dies from his underlying pathology. Because of his failing kidneys or the poison in his blood, he was already dying. I was, I was kidnapped unconsciously and plugged into him to support his system without which he would have died from his underlying pathology. But if I unplug the fetus, he dies because I intentionally kill him, right? Comparing abortion to letting die is par for the course for the abortion industry, right? Letting die, using that term to refer to abortion, is the type of euphemistic bigotry that we've come to expect from the pro-abortion movement. And it relies on dehumanizing the unborn child to be something other than a human being like you and I. If you've watched abortion imagery or footage or abortion in progress or babies ripped up after an abortion, you know that that's not letting die. That is actively and intentionally killing. Now, what if instead Judith Jarvis Thompson's thought experiment said, um, would it be okay for you um, to slit his throat? No, <laughs> that would be wrong. That would be intentionally killing. But if I unplug myself, I am letting him die because he has an underlying pathology that would have led to his death in the first place if I had not been unconsciously kidnapped and plugged into him. Does that make sense? So that's the first difference is, is this, this uh, sort of conflating between killing and letting die. The third way that this argument fails, right, or the third way that it doesn't parallel the relationship between the mother and her child is that abortion is not the withholding of support. And this is similar to the one we just talked about, killing versus letting die. Abortion is not the withholding of support. But her argument, right, is that unplugging yourself from the violinist is the same as abortion because you're just withholding support. So even if it is a human person in the womb, the mother has the right to not give support to the child. That's how she's framing the debate. But abortion is not the withholding of support. If abortion is, is the mere withholding of support, then suffocation is just the withdrawing of oxygen, right? This is the type of euphemistic ling linguistics that the pro-abortion movement uses to dehumanize the unborn child and obscure the moral nature of the abortion debate. Imagine saying, I didn't suffocate my child, I just withheld oxygen. Imagine if you're an astronaut in space and you say, um, I didn't kill the other astronaut. I just unplugged his oxygen tube. 
<laughs> no, you killed him, right? But this is the way that they refer to abortion. So that's the third problem with the argument. Abortion is not the withholding of support. The mother doesn't just choose to withhold her support. She pays a physician to dilate her cervix and chop up her child or take an abortion pill and starve the baby to death and then expel the baby in the toilet. Okay. The fourth problem with this argument is this idea between the responsibility that parents have to their own biological offspring and the responsibility or lack thereof that we have to strangers, right? The very thing that makes it plausible to detach from the violinist, namely that he's a stranger unnaturally hooked up to you, is the very thing that is not the case in the mother's relationship to her own child. Does that make sense? For example, if you refuse to feed a starving homeless person, you won't have broken the law and you won't be held responsible by the law. But if you refuse to feed your starving son or daughter, you will have broken the law and you can be held responsible, right? Because we have legal obligations. We have moral and spiritual obligations, but those are acknowledged by our law. So we have legal obligations to protect our own children and not intentionally do them harm. Abortion is not the withholding of support. It's the intentional killing of a child who is your biological offspring, who in almost all circumstances was conceived through a consensual act of sex. So we have very different responsibilities to our children than we do to strangers. And because I was, I, I unconsciously dissented in my kidnapping and plugging into a stranger with an underlying pathology, I do not have the same responsibility to him as I do to my own child. Furthermore, we as parents do have to meet, or we as human beings should meet, the immediate needs of children for the continuation of their lives, right? Food, shelter, clothing. Well, the uterus or the womb is the prenatal uh, analogy to food, housing, clothing, right? It, it is the basic needs that they require to live. And parents have an obligation to provide those basic needs, but we don't have an obligation to provide those to strangers um, that we bear no legal or moral obligation to take care of. But even in this situation, he is already, the famous violinist, is already suffering from an underlying pathology that will take his life. The unborn child is not suffering from an underlying pathology that will take their life. They're just requiring the basic necessities needed that all human beings need and have been given in the womb to survive in the first place. So that's the fourth problem with this argument is the difference between responsibility to strangers and responsibility to our own biological offspring. The last problem with this argument and the last way that it fails to parallel the relationship between the mother and her preborn child is this idea of telos, right? Or purpose. What is the purpose of the uterus? In the case in her thought experiment, right? My body, my kidneys are plugged in to the famous violinist to rid his body of blood poison so that he can live. But my kidney was not designed to benefit another person. It was designed to benefit me. The uterus was designed to support a child. So one could easily argue that the child has a claim to the uterus because its telos or its purpose is for the child's development and protection, right? Stephanie Gray, wonderful pro-life speaker and colleague of mine, put this beautifully. She said that a kidney exists in my body for my body. The uterus exists in my body for another body. Its telos and purpose is designed for the creation and protection of a separate, distinct, different human being. And the lining of that uterus changes every month 
to prepare for the presence and development of a new human being. So the uterus is the only organ in the female system that is created for someone else, that is created for a different human being than the mother. A kidney is designed to sustain my life. Now, while it may be very nice of me to donate my kidney to another, I am not morally or legally obligated to do so, especially because there are health concerns that I have to take into consideration, right? That might affect my health in a certain way, might make me more susceptible to fight off infection or disease. And that might impact my ability to support my family because the kidney was made for me. The uterus is not made for the mother. So the last way that this argument fails to parallel the relationship between the mother and the child and therefore fails to provide an adequate defense of abortion, despite the fact that that's the name of Judas Jarvis Thompson's article, is the difference between the kidney and the uterus, between the telos of the uterus as, comp as compared to every other organ in the female's body. So this, uh, this you know, herald pro-abortion magic bullet argument that is just going to silence you as a pro-lifer and not know what to say and probably start donating to Planned Parenthood fails and fails utterly so, falling right on its face for the um, bigotry that it represents because defending the indefensible is actually very difficult to do and reality tends to be self-evident. So we're going to get to this next argument in just one second, but first I have an exciting announcement for you. My university speaking tour this school year is entitled The Myth of the Pro-Choice Feminist. Examining the history of the women's movement and the sexual revolution, we will discover how these two movements got in bed with each other and the damage that their infidelity wrought on women, families, and preborn children. Now, we understand with the government shutdowns due to COVID-19, a lot of colleges will not be open, or if they do, it will be open in a smaller format, or if it is, they may not allow public events or lectures on campus where students all cram into a lecture hall. So we have a lecture series available to you where it's a standard lecture given on campus that people can attend in a classroom, or we have a tabling event function where we'll be putting a big sign, the myth of the pro-choice feminist, and we'll be having these conversations with students on campus We'll be recording it and creating some cool pro-life content as well. So if you want to bring this speaking tour to your university or for questions and bookings, email me at seth at sethgruber.com. That's seth at sethgruber.com or contact me through social media. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show. So we're looking at this pro-abortion one-two punch, if you will, right? We've got the famous violinist argument from Judas Jarvis Thompson, and then we have the burning research lab uh, analogy thought experiment argument, or otherwise known as the embryo rescue case, right? This is sort of the, the number two punch of the pro-abortion movement that is supposed to be just, just the height of philosophical integrity, just incredibly articulate in defending a woman's reproductive health care. But as I said at the start of the show, defending the indefensible is very difficult indeed. And so you have to work overtime mentally and emotionally to try to articulate an indefensible position in a way that will that will fall easier on the ears of those hearing it. And we're going to show you how this argument fails and fails miserably so to accomplish its goal, which is to justify the pro-abortion position, to justify that a woman can get a abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. So this argument essentially makes this point. They present a scenario where if forced to choose between rescuing frozen embryos or a toddler, 
in a burning building, for example, everyone would pick the toddler, therefore proving that embryos are not equal in worth to born people. And the pro-life position is debunked. <laughs> so in a, in, a, in a horrific scenario where you might have to choose between picking frozen embryos and a toddler, the pro-abortion advocate goes, everyone would pick the toddler. So there that proves that embryos have no value and they're just insensate blobs of human tissue because we all think that toddlers are more valuable, more human, more person, right? So that's the argument. And this became very popular in the 1980s and, of course, has appeared in different forms since then. But uh, Patrick Tomlinson offered a highly dramatized version of this argument in a viral Twitter thread in 2017 that sparked this you know, huge online debate regarding this pro-abortion argument. And there's some actually excellent pro-life content that you can read in written form if you want to uh, study research this argument more. That There were excellent thought leaders and pro-life individuals responding to this argument uh, when it went viral in 2017. So I'm going to, just like I did with Judith Jarvis Thompson, I'm going to go ahead and read what he wrote, how he articulated this argument uh, word for word and how he put it on Twitter uh, so, so that he can speak for himself and then we'll respond to it. Okay, so here's what he said. Here, here's how he sort of laid out this argument a few years ago. You're in a fertility clinic. Why is it important? The fire alarm goes off. You run for the exit. As you run down this hallway, you hear a child screaming from behind a door. You throw open the door and find a five-year-old child crying for help. There in one corner of the room, in the other corner, you spot a frozen container labeled 1,000 viable human embryos. The smoke is rising. You start to choke. You know you can grab one or the other, but not both before you succumb to smoke inhalation and die, saving no one. Do you, A, save the child, or B, save the 1,000 embryos? There is no C. C means you die. In a decade of arguing with anti-abortion people about the definition of human life, I have never gotten a single straight A or B answer to this question, and I never will. They will never answer honest, honestly because we all instinctively understand the right answer is A, the child. A human child is worth more than a thousand embryos or 10,000 or a million because they are not the same, not morally, not ethically, not biologically. This question absolutely eviscerates their arguments, and their refusal to answer confirms that they know it to be true. <laughs> Okay, so that that's the articulation of this argument offered by Patrick Tomlinson. Now, my first observation is that he, he doesn't know very many pro-lifers, right? He's in a complete echo chamber of pro-abortion ideologues and hacks who think that they are basically the reincarnation of Martin Luther King Jr. as they advocate for civil rights, meaning reproductive rights, meaning genocide, meaning the slaughter of babies in the womb. He obviously doesn't know any articulate pro-lifers. So let me offer this argument in a linear form. Any human being walking into the burning research lab and seeing the five-year-old would intuitively run to save the child. The fact that the choice would be made intuitively is conclusive evidence that either the embryos are not fully human or if fully human, the embryos are not persons in the same sense as the five-year-old. Okay, so that, that's the argument that your response in being forced to choose who to save is indicative of the very the very value of those you didn't save. Your choice when being forced to choose between who to save actually either proves that those you didn't save weren't persons or confers upon them non-person unvaluableness or something like that. Okay, so that's the argument. Now, coincidentally, just like the Judas Jarvis Thompson famous violinist argument, there are five problems that I see with this argument, five ways that it doesn't correlate 
to the topic of abortion and to the mother's relationship to her unborn child. The first problem with this, I will phrase in the form of a question. Does choosing who to save dehumanize those you don't? Does choosing who to save in a moral scenario dehumanize those that you don't save? What if I said I would pick to choose to save the frozen embryos? What if I did that? Does that mean that the toddler is not equally valuable? According to the articulation of this argument, it must. I have now, I have now unpersoned the toddler. I have dehumanized them through my choice to save the frozen embryos. Uh, no, that doesn't sound right. Here's a different scenario. I enter a burning school classroom. The school managed to evacuate the entire classroom except two children. One of those children is mine. My four-year-old son is in one corner and a stranger's child is in the other. I can only save one. If I save my child, does that mean the other toddler wasn't a human being with human rights? No, of course not. What a ludicrous contention. But according to the articulation of this argument, that's what must happen, right? He, 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 he says, he's, he's articulating this argument that your choice, which would be made intuitively, either proves that those you didn't save weren't human or that they were humans but not persons like the one that you did save. Now, every parent in my counterexample would save their own child. I, I'm actually would argue that they're morally obligated to save their own child because we have certain moral and parental responsibilities to our children, as we discussed in the in the Thompson argument. Does that mean that in so doing, in my intuitive choice to do that, that the toddler I didn't save is not a human or if they're a human, they're not a person like my toddler? Of course not. Ben Shapiro actually turned this burning research lab on its head. He, he inverted it one time during a live speaking event and absolutely eviscerated the ludicrous nature of the argument. Here's what he had to say when someone threw this argument at him. He said, he presented this scenario. He said, you can save a box of embryos or you can save the life of a woman who will die of cancer tomorrow. Which one do you save? If you choose the embryos, is the cancer-ridden woman therefore of no moral value? <laughs> How do you answer that? I mean, it just it exposes the miscarriage of logic that is required to make this argument make sense in the first place. So that's the first problem with it. Choosing who to save does not dehumanize those you don't. So it doesn't illustrate that the embryo is not a human or not a person equal in value. The second problem with this argument is this idea of saving versus killing. This, this question of who to save versus who to kill. And, uh, you know, my, the president of our organization, my boss, Scott Klusendorf, put this more perfectly than anyone else ever has. He said that the abortion debate is, quote, not about choosing whom we're going to save, as in the case of the burning lab. It's about whom we're going to deliberately kill to benefit us. Saving my own kid is permissible. Shooting those left behind is not, even if it would increase my chances of escape, right? So if we did offer a counterexample of our own child and another toddler, as opposed to a, a five-year-old toddler stranger and a thousand frozen embryos, and we saved our own child, would we be morally, would it be morally permissible to shoot the other toddler on our way out of the classroom? Of course not, because the abortion debate is about the question, whom can we kill? Whereas the scenario offered here in the burning research lab or embryo rescue case is who do you save? Those are fundamentally different questions, obviously. The argument centers around the question, who would you save? My answer to that question, who would I save, has nothing to do with the abortion debate, which centers around the question, can you intentionally kill unborn children? 
uh, Ramesh Ponaru in his book, The Party of Death, uh, he's over at National Review, points, points this out. He makes an excellent point here. He says that, quote, the moral question posed by the burning building scenarios is the extent to which you can show favoritism without being unjust, right? Because you have to pick someone. In these scenarios, he writes that, quote, we might reasonably take account of all kinds of things, family ties, the life prospects of potential rescuees, the suffering they would undergo if not rescued, etc. And these are not relevant to the question, can we kill them? These are fundamentally different questions. That's the second problem with this argument is the abortion debate about, is about who we can kill. The burning research lab is about who do you save. The third problem with this argument and why it fails to adequately offer a moral defense of abortion is the difference between the human connections between the embryos and the toddler and the extent to which the death of those children will impact those in their lives. We can call this the emotional or familial fallout of those who we don't choose to save. Does that make sense? The five-year-old has formed many meaningful relationships with people who he has come to know, love, delight in, and treasure, and them, and, and he, them, or them, him. The child's death will have a significantly more mentally and emotionally traumatic effect on those he knows, far more so than the loss of frozen viable embryos. But once again, that doesn't somehow prove that embryos are not full humans, not full persons, not truly equal. It just means that the loss of their life will be significantly less emotionally traumatic on those that know them than the loss of the toddler. For example, I mean, the disappointment and trauma of a three-month miscarriage is not comparable to the loss of a toddler, even to the parents who created that child. But that doesn't mean that the embryo, the early fetus, was not a full person with equal value. It just means that their death didn't affect their parents as significantly as a toddler would because of the emotional ties and relationship that had been built with that toddler. Does that make sense? So those things have to be taken into consideration as well. However, still, choosing who to save does not somehow dehumanize those that you don't save. The fourth problem with this argument, and, and I think probably the most significant one that we need to point out, is this, this medical idea of triage, right? If you're not familiar with what triage means, it's, it's, it's a medical term. It's a, it's a sort of a medical uh, pro, um, prognosis, ra rather uh, moral command that we have to abide by where we focus on saving the most lives that we can, maximizing life. So the, it's the assignment of degrees of urgency, if you will, to those who have illnesses, wounds, or are dying, and you decide the order of treatment in illnesses or the order of saving in a disaster to maximize the largest number of patients or victims that you can save. That's this idea of triage. And medical professionals, firemen, police officers have to operate by triage all the time. For example, if a family crashes their car into a lake while on a vacation and the car begins to sink, okay, this is actually real scenarios that has happened. Did you know that if emergency responders show up and are able to dive into the water in time to try to save the family members, did you know that they will try to save the parents first? 
because the parents have a higher likelihood of surviving that incident, being underwater, having a car begin to drown. They are far more likely to survive than the child is. And they will operate under the triage standard that they save the parents first. Does that somehow mean that the children were not equally human or equally valuable? Of course not. By choosing who to save, we don't dehumanize those we don't. But in that scenario, the parents have a much better chance of surviving than the children. So they act in order to preserve the most life they can. As it pertains to the embryo rescue case, if rescued, the embryos face a long and uncertain road. Think about the, the process they have to go to. They must survive the thawing process, and then they must be adopted if their biological parents don't want them. Then they must successfully implant, gestate, and develop until birth. Now, that doesn't mean that that's not possible. Of course, it happens all the time. But it does mean a lot of those embryos will not successfully thaw, or if they do, they won't successfully implant. That means that their road to survival is significantly longer and more difficult than a five-year-old in a burning research lab who is already born, who already has somewhat developed lungs that you can save in that moment. The five-year-old in the burning research lab, in short, has a far, far better chance at surviving. So we can still apply this medical idea of triage to this situation to make sense of the moral intuition that we probably have that we would respond to that question, who do you say, by saying the toddler. And that helps sort of make sense as to why we have that moral intuition. And the fifth and last consideration to take into account, and that sort of illustrates a difference between the scenario they're offering and how it does not parallel the relationship between the mother and the child, is just the, the degree to which the victims in question will suffer if they're left to die in the burning research lab if they're not rescued. A five-year-old can feel pain. I mean, the full range of human physical pain. Viable embryos, while equally valuable, cannot. So if forced between choosing to let a human being die in horrific agony or letting one or some die with no agony or pain at all, who have a very decreased likelihood of surviving, we should choose the latter. So these are some of, I think, the differences that make sense of why individuals would choose to save the toddler. But that choice in no way strips those you don't save of humanity, of personhood, or of human equality. So the intuition we might have to save the toddler in no way refutes the pro-life position. Because what is the pro-life position? It's that it is always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification. Abortion does that. Therefore, abortion is always wrong. If you wanted to truly parallel this thought experiment with abortion, you would ask, in a burning research lab, are you morally justified in killing those in, in the room or of saving one and shooting the other ones on your way out? Of course not, because abortion is about the question, whom can we kill? This thought experiment is about whom can we save? And the answer to the question, whom can we save, has no bearing on the abortion debate and in no way disproves or refutes the pro-life position. So these are the two celebrated pro-abortion arguments that often are, are actually taught by professors in university campuses and philosophy classes to give students and indoctrinate them with pro-abortion propaganda to give them the magic bullet to go out there and eviscerate pro-life 
paternalistic religious fundamentalists. <laughs> and they, they, they fall not even a little bit short, far short of doing what they set out to do, which is to establish the supremacy of the pro-choice position and refute the pro-life position. So I hope that's been helpful. This is a for an evergreen episode for you to re-listen to. And like I always say, maybe have a pro-choice friend listen to it and you can actually talk through these two arguments and why they so miserably fail to set out to do what they plan to do. And God willing, that will move those in your lives to accepting the pro-life position. Well, that's what we have time for, for today. Thanks for joining me. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a rating and review. Just let us know what you think. It really helps. Helps us move up the ratings and reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online or have any questions, you can email me at seth at sethgruber.com or you can go to my website, sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my fall speaking schedule, which I'll have some events, um, or to learn more. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.